Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What did you eat for breakfast this morning? Uh, coffee and milk. I don't eat breakfast. Me neither. I know it's against <laughs> the law, probably, but I am already too fat. Or, I'm not that fat, but I'm kind of short for my weight. You know, so. I think you look great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Helen Holliman, Editor-in-Chief of Munchies, and welcome to the 50th episode of Munchies, the podcast. In the past 50 episodes, we have accomplished some pretty incredible things. So bear with me while I get a little sentimental. We've gone coast to coast, talking to everyone from Danny Bowen here in New York to Nikki Nakayama in Los Angeles. We flew to Denmark and we explored stoner politics with Matt Orlando of Amass. We've discussed the meaning of life and seafood with John Bill in Toronto. And we've also consumed a hell of a lot of ice cream with none other than Lily Hayes. And we've met more than a few of our favorite food heroes. We drank way too many martinis last year with Anthony Bourdain, and we ate a lot of strawberry shortcake with Ina Garden at her house in East Hampton. And today, for our 50th episode of Munchies, the podcast, we're sitting down with someone who really doesn't need an introduction, Jacques Pepin. Papan started working in kitchens at age 13 in 1947. Think about that. And in the 70 years since, he's gone on to become one of the world's most internationally recognized and celebrated chefs. Jacques has cooked for three presidents and shared French food with the world, even best-friending Julia Child in the process. He's a talented educator and a prolific author. He's also one of the first true celebrity chefs. And I grew up, like millions of others, watching him debone chickens on PBS. Uh, four weeks ago, I was in uh, Nova Scotia, in Wolfsville, which is a town about an hour uh, above Halifax. And it's a, they had a, a film festival called Devour. And uh, they were showing, PBS did a show on me, on American Master. You know, so they were showing that thing. They wanted me... To, to be there. So I was there with the, with Peter Stein, with the producer, and someone, a chef from California, actually, but, but he's from Nova Scotia to start, interviewed me at the end. So we're all sitting on the table. He interviewed me, and in the middle of that, he said, can you bone out a chicken? I said, what, what, what do you mean? So he called, he had organized it. A chicken came on stage for me to bone it out. <laughs> and then he wanted to put a blinder on my eyes. I said, well, no, I haven't gone that far. <laughs> yeah, I've bone a few chickens, yes. <laughs> Somewhere not too long ago, a woman introduced me and said, that man was chef to three French presidents, and the three of them are dead. <laughs> That's what she introduced me. <laughs> I say, all right, I didn't kill anyone, but uh, <laughs> when, uh, you know, cook at the time, at the time the cook was very low on the social scale, it wasn't a big deal, you know, so uh, 
I uh, was in Paris, I was uh, unattached, you know, I didn't have, wasn't married, no kid, nothing, so I said, well, I want to go somewhere, and somewhere was going to America, I said, I'll stay a year, two years, learn the language, come back, and I came to New York, loved it, and this is 55 years ago. So, uh, yes, I guess most people come to America to... Uh, for economic reason, mostly, you know, to get a better life, to get a job, or maybe some religious reason, or maybe some uh, political reason, racial reason, or whatever it may be. But uh, I didn't come for any of this. I was doing very well in France, but I just wanted to come here and loved it and uh, and said. So, uh, in that sense, uh, I'm a true American, you see. <laughs> And at that time, describe what the dining scene was like when you first got here. Well, when I first got uh, to New York, yeah, the dining scene, I worked at the Pavilion, so the Pavilion was considered the greatest French restaurant in the U.S., and it was quite good. I didn't think it was uh, better or as good as some of the restaurants I worked at in France, but, I mean, it was pretty good. But... uh, we had an apartment on, uh, I got an apartment on 50th Street and 1st Avenue there. Really nice apartment on top of a restaurant called La Toque Blanche, which was actually the sponsor who uh, sponsored me to come. And uh, so we got that apartment, which was the whole floor, three big bedrooms, a big living room, a bathroom, a kitchen, three windows in the front, three windows in the back, three private entrances to that apartment. We were three guys. And we pay $75 a month. That was $25 each. So you can see, a bit different (laughs) with now. Actually, I was going to Colombia. I started and I remember that uh, the credit was $30 too. So one class, three hours, one class a week was $90 for the term. So I took two two classes or three classes. I went on for many, many years. So at that time, I was doing $80 a week. So in the context of this, you know, you could live in New York and have an apartment and go to school and we live on a salary like that, which wasn't a big salary. But now it's totally out of uh, proportion in a sense, you know. So, um, but then going to the market here, remember going to the market on First Avenue, which was my first supermarket, I suppose. In France, I was used to go to one store after another store, you know, the fish place, the vegetable and so forth. And I thought it was a great idea to have any everything under the same roof so that you didn't have to run around, except that it was package, 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 you know. And I remember asking, where are the mushrooms? They say, aisle five, that was canned mushroom. You know, you didn't have any mushroom. You gotta go to a specialty store to just get regular mushroom. Even fresh herbs, certainly no tarragon or, or basil or stuff like this. None of the oriental vegetable, no, uh, you know, good olive oil or even vinegar or stuff like that. On the other hand, beautiful lobster, beef, very low price compared to what it would have been in Europe. That's why people get crazy about learning how to do a beef burgundy or whatever, which was a way of using, uh, you know, a lower color meat, which was less expensive. No, for people there, that was the fancy thing to do. The normal thing to do was to have a steak, which in front of the steak, no, that would be very rare because it was very expensive. <laughs> Was there anything in the grocery store, like the first day that you walked in, that you saw and thought, wow, why is no one buying this? Because this is the greatest thing in here? No, I think, you know, what, as I said, a great deal of uh, 
packaging and so forth, relatively few vegetables, one type of salad, iceberg, this is it. And I think there was maybe a romaine after a while, but uh, <laughs> uh, that was uh, what people bought at the time. But, you know, you, the wine, you know, was, uh, I buy the half gallon of Almadin white, uh, <laughs> which was, it was fine, you know, it wasn't, uh, or gallo or something. So, uh, you know, this has changed a great, great deal, not only the food, but the wine, and then the cheese, and then the offals, and the bread. Uh, you know, all of those things did not really exist. I mean, the bread was the white sliced bread. That is it, you know. You know, now the young chefs in the U.S. are crazy with offals, you know, a variety of meat. You know, pig's feet and uh, nozzle and the lung and uh, sweet bread and so forth. But uh, when I came to America over half a century ago, that was thrown in the garbage. In fact, when I, uh, prior to... Uh, Kennedy and uh, uh, Martin Luther King assassination, you could walk into Harlem, which we used to do, crossing Riverside Park, and just walk into Harlem and go have a drink there, listen to jazz with a couple of friends. And that's where I discover also a place where I get pig's feet and all that in on 125th Street. That's the first time that I saw that here. You know, no one used it. So I used to go there and get some... Uh, I was probably the only white person in the store buying that type of stuff. Yes, yeah, so it's part of a tradition of the greatest cuisine. I mean, look in China, in South America, in Africa, people use those variety of meat. And uh, now it's getting big here. It's good. You have experienced so many decades of change in the American dining yeah. scene, and you've seen a lot of different things happen, and you've been a critical part of that change. In your mind, what are some of the big moments that stand out to you looking back on some of the great things that have shifted? I don't think that there is any great moment. Those things are pretty uh, insidious. You know, it comes when you don't even realize. You go on and on and on. Uh, certainly, I was asked to go to the White House in 1960, and I didn't. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, René Verdon, went to the White House, uh, became the chef of... And it was maybe the first time that Jacqueline Kennedy took a picture with her chef, all that. So the early 60s, women liberation, organic gardening, health food store, all of a sudden that kind of exploded. And uh, those social change, you know, start changing our uh, view not only of food, but uh, of cooking, of uh, chefs. So that was certainly a change. But uh, as I say, it was pretty... Uh, Serious, it move on and more. We don't really realize it, but uh, uh, you know, in uh, if you look at it back, you know, I can see that when I f was first here in the in the early '60s, I did not know one white American chef. You know, I work at Howard Johnson, so I work in the kitchen there. Mr. Johnson said, well, if you want to work, I was director of research. But he said, you have to work in the restaurant for a few weeks, so for six, eight weeks, three months, whatever. I work on Queens Boulevard there. So it was all African-American there. That was my first introduction to uh, really American uh, cooking, an American cook, an American chef. So, uh, But all the chefs that I knew in New York, in the big hotel, to a big restaurant in New York, to where Italian, French, 
uh, German, a lot of Swiss too, but there was no American chef, you know, until the CIA, that is the Culinary Institute of America, starting, you know, from New Haven and eventually upstate New York, creating chef, and now there are extraordinary chefs, you know, in this country, but not at the time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Looking at chefs today you know this idea of a celebrity chef is Uh very common um and something that you know you've written about in the past is how when you were working in kitchens in paris you know the goal was to be anonymous in a way with every dish that came out of the kitchen um and you know i wonder now that it seems that the rise of individualism is seems to be the expectation in a lot of restaurant culture. Um, What's your impression of that, and why do you think that is? Yes and no. I mean, you know, yes, the goal was to conform. You know, at the Plaza Atene, we did a lobster souffle. We were 50 chefs. I'm pretty sure that any one of us would have done it. You would not know who had done it, and that was fine, that the way it was. And that's how we remember dishes. You know, you can, I can close my eye, you give me a chicken and cream sauce, I said that the poulet à la crème of my mother, or that the lobster souffle of the Plaza Atene, or this is the striped bass of the pavilion in New York. I remember those tastes. So you used to go to work in a place like this, and you used to go there to conform, to learn what they were doing there, to learn, and eventually you move somewhere else. Uh, now, of course, a young chef said, make sure that they know I'm the one who did it. I want to sign it. Make sure it's, you know, so it's a different type of uh, pressure. It's a different type of, uh, last night I had dinner at uh, 11 Madison. So this is a uh, sum up of, uh, and it's extraordinary things too. But I mean, the the goal is to create new things, to show you, to shock you, to amaze you, to do that type of thing, which sometimes you're in the mood, but very occasionally. Uh, conversely, I go in Connecticut where I am. Uh, for example, uh, on Thursday, we're going to go to uh, Seabrook Lobster, I believe, yeah, a little restaurant there, because they have lobster, oyster too. And on Thursday, the oysters are $1 only, uh, only on Thursday. And then the lobster is $25, a perfectly steamed lobster. So, you know, if I were to go there and they don't have that, they create something, I say, whoa, whoa, what's going on? I, I don't want to go. I have a Chinese restaurant that I go to in Clinton. I know exactly when we come in, I'm going to order this, 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 and that, you know. And we all agree. We've gone through the menu many times, and that's what we like. Uh, and several other restaurants like that. So very often, I go to a restaurant a little bit that you go home to feel a certain comfort to find those dishes. There is 24,000 restaurants in New York. If I know that they do the greatest uh, roast chicken at, uh, uh, you know, a Rico, for example, there, then I will go there, and if they don't have that roast chicken, I said, I mean, why am I here? You know, so uh, for me, very often going to a restaurant is that type of thing. Occasionally, then you go into some new type of experimentation like uh, Eleven Medicine or 
uh, you know, or in Chicago at uh, Alinea or one of those places. But uh, it's another thing, you know. Uh, I, for me, very often in the style of my mother cooking or whatever, you want to go back to a restaurant and know of those dishes and you already salivate just thinking about it and already make the connection between that dish and the one you're going to order with it. I mean, there is that type of... Uh, close relation, if you want, uh, between you and the chef. You know? And you go to eat at, um, you know, uh, uh, at uh, a molecular cooking type of restaurant. Uh, and then the, the idea there is totally different. You have three bowls in front of you. You don't know what it is. One is cold inside, one is hot. You know, one is liquid. So you say, wow, how did they do that? But, you know, after a while, you want to go out and have a taco and a beer somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you really were the first celebrity chef, if we can say that, you know, Not really. and I, I, I think so. But um, at what point do you think, did you notice that this was becoming um, more and more popular as in kind of back to what I was asking before about chefs yeah. today? Um, we have, I don't know what the, the statistic is now, but we have about 600 cooking shows that are out there to date, you know? And it seems like more and more chefs are... Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I have, yeah, I was somewhere a while ago and there is a food historian, so-called a lady who said there is 405 cookery shows on television. Wow. <laughs> I don't know whether it's accurate or not, but uh, it's just, it's just plain amazing. Yes, it was surprising all along the way. Less surprising for when Nouvelle Cuisine came early 70s and all that, it was certainly Nouvelle for me, where André Saltner was at Lutèce or Alain Sayac who was at Le Cirque, because we're old enough to remember what it was before. As I say, when I was at the Plaza Athénée, we cut a tomato in that direction. I would never have thought of turning it, cutting it the other way. Someone had done it, why are you cutting it this way? You know, so we were so ingrained in that type of discipline too. So Nouvelle Cuisine was kind of Nouvelle for us. It changed things all of a sudden. Uh, but for most young chefs, here, they started in the 70s, it wasn't Nouvelle for them, it was the way it was at that time, but they never experienced what it was before. So uh, another thing too, which was different, is that most young American chefs were better educated than the French one. I mean, for me, as I say, I left school when I was 13, like Pierre Franet, like most of the people that I know, André Saltner. I went back to school after, but okay, it's a, it's a different thing. But uh, most American chefs, I know a lot of them, which have higher degree, master, even PhD, and so forth. So they look at it in a different way. During my time in the kitchen, the most important person was the maitre d', you know, and director of restaurant. And they opened restaurant in Paris, also even in New York, as Soule did at the Pavillon or, or Sirio at Le Cirque. They could turn around and just get chef all over the place, fine. But they were the ones who got the money, who had the contact with the people, so forth. And I think that started changing with uh, certainly Nouvelle Cuisine and the chef like Bocuse, who was the owner uh, as well as the chef in the restaurant, start going into the dining room to say hello to the people, start talking and so forth. So things started changing certainly for us in the 70s this way. Yeah. You talk a lot about how when you were learning how to cook, you learned by visual osmosis. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, I don't think that my mother ever taught me something 
in the sense of saying, okay, this is how you do it, this is this, this is... No, never. You're there and you say, can you peel this potato, help me to do that? And at some point, well, why don't you start the soup and you know how to do it, you know? So, uh, and uh, what happened when I was in apprenticeship, when I left home, I was 13, 13 years old, and home with a restaurant, so I was already in the kitchen. Uh, and in apprenticeship, that's how you, you, you are taught, you know, the chef doesn't really tell you anything. For a year, we were not allowed to go to the stove. So for a year, I peeled potato and eviscerated chicken and plucked chicken at the time, and scale fish and uh, cut and dice and add. And uh, out of the blue, the chef went there and said, okay, tomorrow you start at the stove. I said, what do you mean? I started, I don't know how to do it. You went to the stove and you knew how to do it. So a type of osmosis, yes, just by repetition and by looking. And and it's a way just as good as another way to learn. It's different, you know, depending on your age. Uh, To make an analogy, when I, uh, I met my wife, I was a ski instructor upstate New York in the Catskill. And uh, I remember uh, uh, for several years, you know, they gave me a class in the morning, the, the I don't know, seventh grade or whatever from uh, Catskill High School, Catskill School. And uh, so the kid at that age, 10, 12 years old, you put them on the mountain, you say, okay, follow, follow closely, and uh, you go down. I mean, uh, and then the same weekend, I give a private class to a guy with 30 years old, and you have to tell him what the fall line is, how to set up your ski, why you're doing to, he wants to know, so it's a different thing. But if you tell that to the kid, it comes through one here, comes out on the other. So, you know, they just learn by. And likewise, you know, in the cooking, if you want, you know, uh, at a certain age, you say, just do it, and uh, you do it. I mean, in fact, at that time, you are not even going to say to the chef, why? You would not have said, why? He said, you do it. If you say, why? He said, because I just told you, just do that. So, And that's how you learn. It's another way of learning. Certainly at ICC here, International Culinary Center, I'm involved in New York or at Boston University, I teach there. No, we go to a great extent to explain to people how to do this, how to do that, to know which is quite different than the way I was taught. But it's the proper way of doing it now. You know. There's a wonderful moment where you talk about how you can hear the sound of a chicken roasting and right. you can look at it too and you can tell where it is in the process. And um, I was speaking to um, Enrique Olvera, the Mexican chef, about this idea of how chefs have sort of lost the connection to smelling and cooking. As in, you know, a lot of kitchens today, he felt that don't exactly employ all of the senses when cooking Mm -hmm. um, like they did back in the day. Um, Do you agree with that? Do you feel like there is anything... Um, that you've noticed in recent years in kitchens that have changed from the way that it used to be? Well, yes, to a certain extent, but still, I mean, I'm very big with uh, the affective memory, you know, in post uh, remembering a thing path, he talked about those memory of the senses, the smell, the eyesight, the touch, the, the taste, the hearing, and so forth. All of that are very powerful and kind of very immediate uh, for a chef that is you know if you ask me where I was in 1975 my brain can go for a while so that I realize yeah yeah I did that too Uh, so this is the memory of the brain but uh, if I walk in the wood with my dog and I smell mushroom 
all of a sudden I'm eight years old and going mushrooming with my father or whatever. So this is very immediate, very powerful, those kind of memory. So yes, the smell is certainly very important in the kitchen. Now, you know, when you go and you do a fire in the wood, uh, the smell of the fire and uh, there is something very visceral about this and you cook whatever you cook on top of it is going to taste delicious even if it's burned whatever then you move to that to uh, you know the fireplace in, in my house you still cook in it so fast and from that you move on to the fire to the stove I still have a, a, a stove which used to be with wood and coal now we do it with uh, gas and so forth from that you move to electricity electric stove and by then you've lost the flame by then you move to the microwave so little by little you get disassociated from the food itself you know and you get more remote and more remote so there is a point to this yes where uh, you have lost a little bit of your sense of uh, and that's why when I am with my granddaughter too, it's not a question only of uh, cooking with her. It's a question of going to the garden, telling her, pick me up some tarragon. You know, that's shy, you know, that's tarragon, this. Or then going to the market and say, pick me up some pear, make sure they are ripe, smell them, you know, touch them, or the tomato or whatever. So getting involved with your senses is very important, yes. Of anything in the kitchen today, do you have something that you love to do more than anything? It could be prep. It could be cutting an onion or boiling an egg. I always like to use, uh, as I say, leftover. So I do fridge soup, my wife call, which up at the <laughs> refrigerator. There's half an onion, a piece of cucumber, some wilted salad or whatever. So we do a soup with it. And, uh, yeah, there is something kind of zen. Uh, when I am alone often in the kitchen, I put music on and I cook and uh, I can think about it. And for me... Like most chefs, you know, uh, if you have gone to a, a very long, uh, you know, practice uh, technique, then your hands are moving almost automatically. You don't even think about it. Too. So uh, uh, this is why you have to repeat and repeat those techniques to transcend the level at which you have to think about it. Now you can think in terms of a combination of ingredient or color or texture, and your hands are just moving back and forth, you know, and that's, uh, for a professional chef, it's important. What are you listening to in the kitchen when you get to cook alone? Either jazz or uh, uh, old French song, like from uh, Edith Piaf or Frank Sinatra, or, or classical music, you know. I like classical music, but my wife is not crazy about it, so <laughs> when she's there, it's more Frank Sinatra. <laughs> And, and what jazz? Do you have any favorite musicians? Well, you take five, Dave Brubeck, or you know, that type of thing, yeah. Thank you so much to Jacques Pepin, and thanks so much to my podcast producer, Phil Domachowski. Jacques Pepin's latest book, A Grandfather's Lessons, is available now. He also has a new nonprofit foundation promoting culinary education. You can learn more at jp.foundation. If you've been listening to the show, you already know about our very first cookbook. It's called Munchies, Late Night Meals from the World's Best Chefs. It is the greatest cookbook that has ever been created, but I am completely biased. It's filled with 65 recipes from your favorite chefs, and you can order a copy online, or even better, buy it in person and support a local retailer. You'll find it wherever books are sold. 
As always, you can get all of our delicious Munchies content over at munchies.tv. Hit us up at Munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. And if you like the show, show some love and rate it on iTunes. It actually helps us out. I'm Helen Holliman. I'll talk to y'all real soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.